Welcome everyone to episode 47 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Matt Kalish. Most of the viewers will know Matt. He is a co-founder at DraftKings. He's been there over 10 years and recently he's helped launch the Rainmakers product, which I think is the best game they've ever come up with at DraftKings. I'm sure you agree, Matt. I mean, I hope it becomes that and off to a good start, I would say. It's been really fun to work on. And I like all the different contours to it. I feel like it's kind of shaping up to be really deep, really engrossing, something like not easily solved. And, um, you know, that the, the twist and, twists and turns will kind of make it interesting over the years. So I'm really, you know, getting enamored with it, I would say. I don't know if I would have been your target audience because I'm 44 years old in December. I have never owned an NFT, um, <clears throat> not engaged in crypto. And uh, the only thing I have going for me as a target audience is that I love fantasy sports. So I don't I don't know if I would have been your your early adopter, but I, I was an early adopter and uh, I, I've been one of the most fervent buyers in the auctions in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I've noticed there's this um, kind of common story I've heard, which is Rainmaker feel like an intersection of a lot of interests that people have and kind of like marries a bunch of interests. So people from very different paths end up checking it out. And those paths have included everything from like fantasy sports, DFS or other skill gaming, collecting you know, like uh, physical sports cards, for example, collections there. Any like kind of crypto NFT enthusiasm, definitely I've seen like that filter in a bit. Um, just trading like um, whatever, stock trading or day trading stuff around. Um, even like card games that you wouldn't necessarily connect like um, Magic the Gathering I've mentioned a few times or, or like these collectible card games where it's, you know, both collectible and you play a game like all of these different interest groups kind of converge into rainmakers because it is inspired by all of those things and the point you brought up though on nfts i've noticed right away has been um as it turns out you know when we did the deal with the nflpa to build this game nfts were kind of a big uh it had a lot of momentum you know this was near the end of last year lots of momentum it was growing really quickly I think a lot of projects were pretty successful and you know companies like so rare or dapper labs or all of these were you know raising a lot of money they were bidding a lot for for deals um and i would say our biggest kind of counterpart on a lot of these things was so rare so you know these two um kind of uh, uh, uh like what we were doing and what so rare was doing kind of was converging against this idea of like we want to build games using league ip it's a giant category, you know, EA Sports, obviously with our, like arcade games and console games built a multiple, you know, billion dollar annual business doing that. Um, sports cards like Panini, giant categories. All of these are, you know, whatever, tens of millions of dollar licensing deals with the leagues, right? So anyway, this kind of was going down that similar path. And then more recently, though, I think the NFT categories really come down a lot and there's a tremendous amount of like cynicism around it healthy maybe in a lot of cases but um what i found is that the nft aspect has almost become 
a detraction or it's like definitely doesn't help much to ever even be mentioning nft it's much more like the game mechanics that have attracted people i think to rainmakers yeah the the game design i find intricate and that's really what drew me in but let's backtrack for a second and talk about so rare and top shot those do seem to be the antecedents uh, i have an interesting story as it relates to so rare one of my ex-students is in venture capital and he was trying to get in the round that closed in january 2021 and uh he set me up on a call with the ceo because the ceo was looking for a sports economist and he thought that i might know the right person to introduce him to so i had the one hour call and and uh i wasn't successful in getting a a slot for my student in the in the round but i said well don't you think this is kind of rich a 500 million dollar valuation are you are you really eager to get in at 500 million dollars and then um it kind of went straight up from there you started reading about it everywhere in uh february march april 2021 and then peter jennings was telling me that their their ultimate valuation reached uh 4.4 billion in the latest round or something like that um quite quite yeah. impressive so yeah, there was a couple of mega rounds in there i think so rare raised like 680 million dollars on four billion valuation uh something like that dapper i think had a similar seven billion valuation these are like big big kind of uh future prospects are getting baked into these numbers it's not like they were you know delivering anywhere near that kind of kind of revenue but i think it was a bet on web3 and digital collectibles and the growth of you know the nft space and like what they could do in the future they seemed like a little bit of like vc speculative bet taking and i mean i guess who knows what will happen i think short term these things are so cyclical like short term there is definitely maybe that looks not so smart but then who knows what the future holds and i'm definitely in the camp of I think when things get real exuberant, it's usually like way too exuberant and like things just tend to get a little bit out of control unless you put a check on it. And then when things are getting kind of max negativity, it's usually like being overblown to a very significant proportion. So I think right now some of like the negativity is quite overblown. Like I'm very comfortable. Look, I mean, very few people I think have bigger like NFT bags than I do. I guarantee you there's like maybe, I don't know, under 50 people in the world that have more of a like NFT collection that they're holding right now than I do. So I get it. I like really understand what that's like when it goes down, whatever, 70, 80% in a few months. That sucks. It's awful. And so I get the, the cynicism. I get all of that. But I think it typically gets overblown and to the negative. And at some point you have to kind of realize that that is also the moment when you know, when opportunities pop up. So I was a non-participant in both Top Shot and So Rare, but I want to give my base level understanding, and then maybe you can tell us what lessons you guys learned from the Top Shot and So Rare experience. So um, Top Shot, as I understand it, did not commit to a strict production schedule in the way that Rainmakers has. So. <clears throat> uh ultimately they flooded the market with cards or at least that's kind of the twitter 
perception of things. And then uh, with So Rare, they always did have the fantasy contest. So there was a sort of baseline valuation of the cards based on their use in these fantasy contests. Um, but unlike Rainmakers, uh, they gave away only a small amount of money and prizes in these contests. So what what lessons uh, did you learn from observing Top Shot and So Rare? By the way, I should I should mention with So Rare that my ex student who was in venture capital, the reason they were hungry to invest at such a high valuation is that they pay very close attention to the engagement statistics. And they noticed that the engagement for So Rare was absolutely off the charts. And my, my early experience with Rainmakers is similar, like it leads to uh, very high levels of engagement. Yeah, I think there's, you know, another common story I've heard is the initial, because you have to get through the initial, like uh, what I would consider to be like an, a very natural bias towards being cynical about the game. Like you have to get past that hurdle to try it and onboard and get a little firsthand experience. And I think this cynicism is like human nature, it just comes from like protect yourself from getting into bad situations or whatever. That's like where those feelings come from. It's a rule of thumb, I think that your brain just has. So I, I never think it's particularly, um, like problematic when somebody comes at it like um people uh, i've had even personally like common experiences where people will come to me and they'll be like oh so you're rugging everybody in like DraftKings with rainmakers or some kind of like scam or this or that like these are very cynical viewpoints but i think it come from a place of people just protect it's like a self-protection from bad things ever happening to you sort of mode and so then starting from that point, I think a lot of people are starting from that point because of you know, the trajectory of games like, or collectibles like Top Shots or, uh, or whatever, right? And I think what kind of happened with Top Shots is exactly what you said, crazy exuberance to the point of like, could never live up to the hype that was created in like February, 2021. They had incredible demand. I think it was like the queues were 200,000, 300,000 people to buy 10,000 packs. So you were just never getting through. Like unbelievable FOMO. Everybody was just kind of like uh, buzzing, you know, about, about Top Shocks. And so I think the initial kind of month or two created this unsustainable kind of like hype cycle. And then when things became a little bit more down to earth. I think that also coincided with them printing a lot of supply, a lot of card packs. Um, and I think the biggest factor which has really like come into the forefront is no utility is really tough. Like with just pure collectibles, um, like while wow, that's fun. And I think that there's a like meaningful business around pure collectibles. It's nowhere near the size and scale of what I think Dapper were getting credit for. It's much smaller, you know? And so once things that were a little bit more like contoured started popping up like so rare with gameplay becoming more prominent and stuff like those maybe smaller user base a little bit more intense to onboard but then it's like a more intense engagement as well like people really got into the game they wanted to compete and also like i think the idea of the limited 
supply or like the guaranteed scarcity at high tiers, it gives you that assurance that it's not going to get printed to the atmosphere. And so all of that is really, I think, part of what's helping so rare. Um, where where I think rainmakers come into play is like we have gambling licenses, we have fantasy sports licenses in a bunch of states, so we can do all of that, but we can do it for money. So like it's hard to, um, I think, for anybody to just get their foot in the door on real money gaming around NFTs because you have to have the right licensing, or you're kind of in this very gray area that if you ever built something big, you're probably getting in the crosshairs of like regulators and stuff. So I think one of the biggest differences between like SoRare and, and Rainmakers is really SoRare is global. They have no KYC. There's not really cash pricing, um, but they could take kind of like a global audience in with no no like verification. It, you could be coming in from whatever you name the country anywhere. And so they have like a bigger top of the funnel there, but no prizing and no KYC. DraftKings, everything's super regulated. You have to have an account, you have to have KYC, all the same kind of things that you would do if you're playing sportsbook, if you're playing, you know, DFS, you have to do to play Rainmakers. So like all of that verification creates some hurdles, but also we know like what we're building is like, um, we're doing it the right way. We're doing it sustainably. We're doing it in compliance with all the regulations. And so, but because we do that, that means we can offer really large prizes. And that to me is like a big kind of next step to what SoRare started. It's like everything that they have for engagement plus what if you pay whatever, like $30 million of prizes too, what happens then? And I think that's when you start to get to the really interesting piece of um, like, like who really will hold on to attention over time and keep it interesting and keep, an audience engage and make a big audience exist around a game. I think that's like the next piece that will really help unlock that. I want to talk about onboarding, which for the Rainmakers game is essentially packs, auctions, or marketplace. Um, but I will try before we do that to do a one minute introduction to the game. You'll have to allow me some license because it's a very complex game, as you know. Um, Essentially, DraftKings has committed to give away almost $30 million over the course of this season. And the player is constructing fantasy teams using their collectible cards. They're doing it across two contest types. You have the classic contest type, which is your typical Sunday slate of games at 1 o'clock Eastern. That accounts for maybe 75% of the prize pool. And then you have your uh, showdown type for the primetime games and that accounts for about 25 percent of the prize pool you have uh different tiers based on gambling budget essentially uh the top tier is the rainmaker tier where there are only eight versions of each player available then you have the legendary tier where you have uh 50 versions available for most players then you have elite where there's 300 versions of each player and then <clears throat> The less scarce tiers are the rare tier where I think there's about 1,500 versions of each player. And then the core tier where there's a very high number of cards for each player. And um, you you choose your tier and then inner lineups. According to the lineup constraints, you have five players in the classic, four players in the showdown. For let's say the Rainmaker contest, you have to use uh, two Rainmaker cards, and then you can use 
uh, up to three legendary cards. And uh, last item, there is a superstar class that prevents you from loading a lineup with the absolute nuts. And uh, there are around 20 superstars. You can only play one per lineup and they have to play on their tier. So if you want to play Christian McCaffrey in a Rainmaker contest, it must be the Rainmaker version of that card. So having given that simple introduction, uh, let's talk about the onboarding process. You have um, packs, auctions, and marketplace. Now, as you mentioned with Top Shot, packs were very important. Uh, maybe you can explain the pack process to people. I I don't find it uh, particularly thrilling, but I know uh, most of the NFT community does. Could you explain the pack process? Yeah, absolutely. So there's like the, the 2022 Rainmaker football player card collection like you mentioned, has some guaranteed scarcity at the top tiers. And then um, at the bottom tiers, there's like a in each set, there's a guaranteed amount, but then a couple things may expand it, such as the new user, like the, everybody gets a free starter pack, for example. And so, cause we don't know how many people are gonna claim their free starter pack. There could be like a variable amount of those getting taken. So, but within the sets, like Genesis would be a set, Elevate would be a set. Um, these are basically like how cards get introduced into the game and they'll each set comprise of some amount of that guaranteed supply for the year. So Genesis, for example, um, you know, that had about 25% of the Rainmaker cards for the year. It had about 20% of the legendary cards for the year, and it had about 10% roughly of the uh, elite cards for the year. So it kind of like skewed towards the higher tier cards and the way that those get introduced into the game is a combination of pack drops and uh, auctions. And when packs get opened, players start getting their hands on the cards and then they can list them for sale in the marketplace. Uh, and that really allows people to then, if they want, they can go pick specific players instead of you know accruing players through packs. And so the the main idea of packs is really like, one is the vast majority of people prefer pack like that experience because it's just more fun and like being able to open something with like a chance of a great outcome a chance of not great i like to just say like DraftKings made the game so it's going to have like some swings it's going to be like some packs are 10x what you paid some might be 20 percent um and i think that's just part of like have to own that that is the experience because that is how it works like the pack has volatility if you open it you don't know aside from the guarantees of the pack like what you're guaranteed to get you don't know if it's going to be amazing or the worst um i've been on like 10 live streams of pack breaks and i can tell you like i've ridden that roller coaster with everyone and i do it personally with physical sports cards but like i've ridden that roller coaster with people where i'm sitting there and i'm like oh my dear god like tremble legendary and then another like whatever a kicker at elite is the chase card and stuff and then you're just like this is absolutely terrible and then somebody pulls like justin herbert legendary like gary vaynerchuk on the stream or something so like you'll hit like 20 percent pack 30 percent pack 7x pack whatever it's that is what it is and so i think it's important to just own that and say yeah, the game's made by DraftKings. That's part of the fun of the game is the pack break appeal to a lot of people. Um, and 
I think the reason why that can be almost like a full solution though is because of how the marketplace works. If you just wanna buy specific cards, you can always do that. Like the packs yield those players and people put them up on the marketplace. And in fact, a lot of people like to sell most of the cards they break in packs because they're chasing, you know, whatever they want, like the chase cards in the packs and things. So I think you automatically get the experience of like, I can buy players off the marketplace just by having packs alone. So I think that creates like the, the kind of full solution in a lot of ways. Um, in the case of auctions, I think that's been something, you know, TBD on exactly like how often I think that that will be like a, a form. But in Genesis, we did like one Rainmaker of each, um, you know, skill starter, QB1, um, role player, all et cetera, of the auction. auction. What's that? <laughs> I was having fun in the auctions. I, I love that format. Yeah. The, the candle st style auction I had never seen before, but that that was certainly uh, a great thrill. Yeah, yeah, those are fun. I think we'll definitely be doing some of them. It's tough to figure out like how, it's still something that I think um, based on feedback and what we hear probably could could adjust. But it's the type of thing like, if it's in an auction, then it's not in the pack. So it's kind of like a decision because there's only so many of the chase cards, you know? So it's just trying to figure out like, how do you kind of give enough of that experience while also, you know, in the case of auctions, I think what's great is you have a guaranteed ability to get the specific card you want because there's no guarantee that, like if you're looking for a certain Rainmaker, no guarantee that the holder will be listing it for sale. No guarantee that it'll even be like pulled out of a pack if it hasn't been opened yet, you know? So it gives you a way to like guarantee you could get access to the player if you want them for your lineups. So I really like that piece of it. And um, so yeah, just kind of balancing all these factors, trying to figure out the mix. Like I think everything has a role in just figuring out like how big like each of these things are is, is the game. So in terms of the contest play itself, at each tier, you have multiple contests available. Um, why was the decision made to have multiple contests available at each tier rather than have like, for instance, one huge contest at each tier? Yeah, a couple of things. So there's, in general, the tier system is meant to just cater to like regardless of budget. So like there's the idea of there's five tiers of competition that like as you get progressively higher than the you could think of it like the the cost to be playing in that tier goes up. So, for example, um, like core tier, you could play for free or you could play for maybe like 20, 30 dollar budget, pick up some cards off the marketplace and be playing a decent lineup and a rare team might be more like a hundred bucks to have something decent, like decently competitive lineup wise. And when you get up to Rainmaker, now you're talking like many thousands of dollar lineup, right? So like there's that aspect of almost like in DFS, how there's the contests that are 25 cents, $3, $20 is kind of like the biggest, um, 300 and whatever, 5,000. Yeah. So there's the same kind of vibe that gets created by these tiers. So that allows like everybody to get access to the game to have their foot in the door but if you want to play at like the the highest tiers you can and then within each tier like what you're describing is the game mix you know there's a variety of contests that you can pick from and the like in week one about two-thirds or so of the prize pool for each tier is in um like what i would call like the main headline cash game you know it's called the fiat frenzy 
think I'm pronouncing fiat properly. It's like um, the fiat frenzy has two thirds of the money. And then the other um, like one third is split up between a bunch of different more specialty games. So I would consider that the equivalent of like if you go into this isn't going to be the perfect comparison, but like if you go into a like a blind auction where you put your ticket into the shoebox to win a prize, if there's one prize that's like the best one, it's going to get the most tickets. But there might be stuff like I can win an Afghan that was knitted by this person's mom or I could win like a candle or whatever. So it's like not the number one best prize, but there's going to be some audience for these more niche niche prizing and there's also some like payout formats that i think are not the most popular but they're decently popular um things like um top x win a fixed prize winner take all um also like limited entry games like single entry you know have an audience that's not as big but it's like a meaningful group of people that care about that so yes yeah, some of the games are set up where it's like the main headline games two-thirds of the money but there's a single entry that's about 10 percent of the prize pool that you can play if single entry is something that's the most important to you um and then the last thing i'll mention is there's a few like um with the world championship for example we're doing this like world championship that's qualified into through tournaments so th these have dedicated tournaments where if you want to compete in New Orleans in week 15 for the million dollar kind of like rainmaker football championship the way to do that is you put in like an entry into the dedicated contest for that and so that makes sure like the people in that actually want that prize and you know it's like targeted in that way uh, instead of just like I won the biggest thing so now I'm going to the, the championship even if you didn't want that so it's a little bit of just like giving choice um and, and the optionality around like payout curve, how many entries per people, pricing, pricing depth, all these things. I like it. Uh, one of the great things about the game is that with the fully committed max production schedule, you're able to uh, compare the availability of cards to the prize pools and try to come up with some guess as to the value uh, for each card. Um, one thing that's unknown is how quickly the cards get released over the course of the season. So really the availability of cards for say week one is a bit of a guessing game that I guess depends on how many new players sign up and how many uh, packs are opened and things like this. So is it correct to say that we really uh, don't know how many cards are, are available for week one contests until uh, week one is upon us. As of today, that's true. However, like I don't think that will be true before week one kicks off. It's just kind of true right now. So basically where we're at is the for the whole season, there's been like that production schedule. So the if anyone's not as familiar, the way it works is um, for most of the, the fantasy relevant players, there's going to be for the whole season, eight Rainmakers, 50 Legendary, 300 Elite. And then within the sets, the, um, the rare and the core are also fixed. So it, it would be like, you know, a hundred in Genesis set, 120 rare cards and 600 core per player were made. Um, and so it's just kind of like a ratio off of the, the Elite. And... 
so that for the whole season is known. And I think what is known for sure is Genesis and Elevate Supply. And I think the other thing that many understand is that there's like a main set coming. This will be like the most casual, um, like of the drops, it'll be the most like accessible, casual, like the price points will be accessible and it will be um, just kind of the biggest uh, set you know, in terms of like amount of cards. And so we're gonna share more about that before the season, but it's just not like fully out there yet. And I think that will paint the rest of the picture for anyone who's trying to figure out like, okay, how many lineups will there be? And the other thing I think that's interesting is the packs don't necessarily all like get opened and they're not all necessarily like um, activating perfectly into the games or, or like optimally. So like just cause cards exist, there's still breakage. There's like people that don't put in lineups people that have like seven cards when you can only use five, but all this stuff. So I think that there's some some maybe difficult to predict stuff about like how perfectly everybody will kind of execute their lineups too, if that makes sense. I think there'll be a good bit of like game selection, contest selection, like what lineup in what contest, like all that kind of theory. Like I know it is there and um, I don't think the the like world of fantasy players or skill gamers need me to even like help on that they get it you know i think everyone gets that that's a piece of the uh where you could find wins where you could find you know like uh oh this contest doesn't have enough entries and it has you know relative to how many entries as great prizing or whatever or like the type of entries you put into contests that are top heavy or deeper payout wise or whatever like all this stuff is what i would call like selection or like game theory around how people play the contest and i think that you know the one needs uh, i think my help on that they can figure it out because that's like what good skill gamers do what fantasy players do so yeah there's an additional element of the game that there has been some confusion on there there is the concept of the franchise score which is essentially the score for your collection as a whole and the way I understand the franchise score, tell me if I have this right, you have uh, certain multipliers. For instance, the rare collections have uh, greater value and the earlier collections have greater value. So you get a nice multiple, for instance, on your Genesis Rainmaker cards. And then where the confusion comes in is that I think that you apply this multiplier to the actual on-field production of your players and so you have the multiple for each player, the production for each player, and you sum those up for your entire portfolio, and that gives you your franchise score. Other people think that the on-field production has nothing at all to do with the calculation. What is the truth? That's correct. So it has nothing to do with the production on, because what, what I think is important to understand is that there's like, of all of the prizing going out, vast majority is contest prizing based on the production of the players. So that's something like um, 28.8 million of prizing throughout the season. It's been put into draft groups. It's all tied to contest payouts based on fantasy production. And then there's like a 2 million, like it's over 2 million of, of prizing going towards franchise score. So it's like a under 10% type of deal. But it's a program that basically like measures the depth and quality of your collection not on the basis of how they're performing on the field, but just like the breadth of it, the quality of the tiers that you're holding and the set quality. Um, there's a couple other bonuses like Rookie has an amplifier. And so it gives you um, 
kind of like say you have a deeper collection of like role players back up like what I, like if you're holding a deeper collection there it gives more utility to cards deeper in the list because i don't think anybody has a hard time figuring out like what's the utility of um you know mahomes or jonathan taylor but like some i think uh desire is there to make sure that all of the cards across the spectrum have some level of like gameplay utility to them and so things like achievements things like missions things like leaderboard uh, on franchise score can help enhance that and then another version of this is kind of like in week four we're launching the deep roster format which you know you need a tight end you need a kicker you need a like a defensive player and that will have you know two hundred thousand apprising a week it's about you know uh 20 almost 20 percent of the mix so like the best fantasy players obviously are always going to be by far the most valuable and um that being said i think these programs help enhance the the intent around why you'd want to hold a deeper set of cards and those are going to be offered at each tier those uh deep roster yeah that's right so every every tier from like core up to rainmaker will have a thursday to monday this starts week four Thursday to Monday draft group, all games, deep roster. So it'll be, you know, like if you've played season long with a like standard roster, I think this will look pretty familiar to people. But it's it's like typical the you know quarterback, two running back, two wide out, flex, tight end, defense, kicker, and so that really creates like um, if you're holding high end whatever like high end defense kicker or whatever like these sort of players. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense to be using them in the classic um, week one contest because, you know, the, the wide outs and everybody like the expected value of like the skill position people is just so great. But come week four, that's when I think like everyone's going to be using kickers, everyone's using defense. And so it'll be kind of that will, I think, enhance the value of those cards quite a bit. Yeah, of course, of course. So as far as franchise score is concerned, um, whether you have a premier card like uh, C.D. Lamb or Cooper Cup or Justin Jefferson uh, versus say a wide receiver three, the uh, the score for franchise purposes is the same. Am I understanding that correctly? Is it provided they're the same uh, vintage, if you will, like a Rainmaker Genesis? For the purposes of your franchise score, the wide receiver three is equal to the wide receiver one? Yeah, so if you use like my uh, Chase Winovich, one of my favorite former Patriots who's now on the, the Browns is in the game. He's a defensive player on the Browns. If you have his Rainmaker from Genesis, that's 500 points, you know, plus you're getting the 5X Genesis multiple. Like Rainmaker cards are always worth 500 genesis set cards always get the 5x multiple so that's 2500 points you know if you have his elevate card it's going to be 500 base points for rainmaker with the 2x multiple on elevate you know if it's an elevate rookie you get the double as well so it would be like what 500 for rainmaker 2x for elevate and a further 2x for rookie so it'd be like a you know 2000 point rookie card and so regardless of the quality of the production, the point rubric is like the same. And so it's a game, I guess you'd say like a game within the game. Um, 
And that being said, like the 90% of the prizing goes towards sort of on-field performance in the fantasy leagues. So it's not meant to be something that's like taking over the the game or it's like overly focused on, but it's definitely meant to, you know, we don't want to have like players represented in the pool that there's really like thin rewards around why you would want to have them. So we want to make sure that there's something around like why the intent of why you'd want to collect deeper into the checklist. I got it. Uh, one element, though, that has already been released for the franchise score is that your uh, 2022 cards have some benefit for 2023 franchise score. This, so far as I understand it, is the only um, concrete value that the 2022 cards have in the 2023 season. There is, of course, a lot of speculation about the future value of the cards. Uh, some of the speculation includes the idea that maybe there would be some burn mechanism that would allow you to translate 2022 cards for 2023 cards. There's also sort of out there speculation that as DraftKings takes the training wheels off this particular NFT project, the cards will circulate and become part of other games and other environments kind of outside of the uh the DraftKings purview um and then there's also the possibility that uh outside of their utility within the game these just become pure collectibles and perhaps uh speculators in nft world start to focus on something or another whether it's a certain type of player uh like an outproducing rookie or a uh low serial number cards or what have you um so there's a lot of speculation about future value, and I would recognize that this might be a question that you can't tackle. But is there anything you can you can say on on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Like we're um, for the most part, I think people would probably not accuse um, not accuse us of like feeding into any sort of like irrational hype about this. We're doing everything we can to be like if anything, surprise and make people more happy versus like safe things that aren't going to happen in the future, right? We're building a game that's like multi-year, like our um, our um, roadmap, our, you know, uh, deal around the card, like it's a multi-year thing, right? So the game we're building, when I know that we have to own it and execute it and kind of uh, build year after year for, years it creates like a set of incentives of like you want to give a great experience early on that's rational that doesn't like blow out of proportion what could happen in the future to create like a short-term hype cycle that no one could ever live up to like we talked about the um uh you know nba top shots february 2021 dapper lab story for example like scary chart you see <laughs> holy shit unbelievable demand everybody's just kind of like i'm retiring and quitting my job and i'm going to be a pro top shot player and then it's not a thing right like you can't live up to that kind of if it obviously doesn't make sense then it's not real right like it it's real if it you know, if it makes sense right so anyway like with the future year utility for the most cynical viewpoints coming in i've typically said like 
if if your sort of natural mode is to be very cynical then i would just uh towards like how that will go i would just assume nothing because it's easier you'll never kind of be mad at yourself after however that's not the case like we definitely have a multi-year plan for the the cards and basically the way that that works is going into year two all prior year cards will have gameplay utility so there'll be contests for past year cards um i think we showed in franchise score that you know um prior year cards are worth 10%, you know, so if that's a helpful rule of thumb, like 10% of current year card value is past year card. So it's like carry some value in franchise score, but also there'll be contests with, you know, similarly like some prizing, but much less than the current season collection. Um, we're launching games that take like entry fee, like for people who want to use past season collections and play for more, like have more skin in the game and just make it more interesting. There'll be games using past season cards that have like uh, paid entry fees. So you can always use them. And it's a matter of like, do you want to play in the free, like company funded, relatively smaller prize pool uh, or like pay entry fee wise to get to a bigger prize pool game? I think both will have an audience. Like some people might just not find it like um, as interesting without the entry fee to kind of amplify what could be won. So we're planning on doing both on the contest prize pool side. A couple of things that we're like um, sharing more on with our year two product is like the burn mechanics. So the idea of like having a choice around being able to burn your card to improve your current season collection. That's something that like we'll have a bigger communication about how that works. Um, something of like a year two game mega announcement like if that makes sense. So we'll be able to lay out like, here's the core essence of like how the game mechanics of year two work. But like, I think what people should have in mind is, um, yes, I can play the cards in, in contests, but also I can burn them to improve my current season collection if I choose to. So I think that's also a big form. Um, the franchise score credit, achievements, missions, all of these things, like there'll be some degree of kind of um, like rewards going around past season collections. Uh, final piece is just like the trading in the marketplace. Like, I don't know necessarily, like it's impossible to say what kind of like underlying card value will be assigned to the cards, right? I don't know. Like that's totally, it's not even like if I wanted to could make something come true there, you know? But like to the extent that like there's lots of players in the game, the underlying sort of desire, demand to collect cards and hold them, especially stuff like Rainmaker cards, rookies, like stuff that would typically be more coveted in collectible sports cards. I can tell you, like, I understand that that's a value driver, that that's something that like only helps everyone if there's like a healthy interest in those cards from that angle. And so it's like something in terms of like the ongoing marketplace support the ongoing kind of promotion of the game, building a big audience. Like it's something that's on my mind. Um, like how do you create a really robust ecosystem around like the cards year after year? And I know lots of products have been able to do that, like Panini with physical sports cards that are licensed, you know, they clearly have tremendous value. And then some things don't. And so I think if you're if you're taking a very conservative lens, like some like to, I think you could just assume that that's not of value. It's not a source of value. And if you're taking a more aggressive lens, I think you would assume like, OMG, what if 
DraftKings, Rainmakers, the community? What if everybody actually like overperforms what's expected there and figures that out? Um, and so like I would leave that up to everybody to like kind of decide how they want to be uh, looking at it from an aggression standpoint on that. Of course. Um, as I told you, I'm a novice on NFTs, so I've never transacted on OpenSea, for example, never owned a, a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape or anything like this. Um, but I know enough to say that currently the DraftKings Rainmakers are on training wheels because, um, well, for one thing, as I understand it, they have to be based on the fact that DraftKings they need to be able to track the transactions because they have some of the ongoing marketplace revenue going to the players, which hopefully will be good for the ecosystem, right? The players have a have a benefit in these cards being successful and frequently traded. Um, and so I could see arguments for DraftKings kind of never wanting transactions to take place outside of the DraftKings purview. I would think that that would be kind of the base case just because of the need to maintain the 5% for the players association. Um, but uh, maybe I would say some NFT people would prefer to see it go fully decentralized. So could you talk about that tension a little bit? And um, I was also just curious um, with the training wheels on do you protect people from mistakes that they might might make like for instance around account security if you don't secure your crypto punks that's obviously on you but presumably if you're following uh, pretty good security protocols and your uh, DraftKings account gets hacked and someone sells all your cards for one cent presumably uh those trades can be broken somehow i was also just randomly curious about uh, for instance, the equivalent of a fat finger trade or of a mistaken order, like I saw a Kyler Murray Elite card traded for $9 the other day, and clearly the user meant to put in 900 and put in nine. Yeah. Mistakes like that somehow be corrected. I know that, I know that this is a tough topic, but I was wondering what you can no, say. No, we are. That is, that is a topic. It's tough to find the perfect balance, too, because I think... Um, because the cards are used in a game that has a lot of prizing and it's competitive and, and all of that, there's some degree of like fairness at play here. So if um, an example would be like, like your Kyler $9 card example, everybody playing the game would love to have the $9 Kyler quarterback, right? So like to what degree is it fair to have access to that card for $9, you know? And so it's something that, I know it come with the territory that's like could always happen, but like the types of things that I think are interesting are, you know, cause it's a game that people are playing against each other for meaningful prizes. Like you want relatively fair access at market to pick up cards. So like um, an example in the Kyler case is, hmm, like wouldn't it be better if, if somebody's willing to pay like meaningfully more than the $9 that they should have the opportunity to do that, you know? So like trying to come up with solutions that balance like the fairness with the fact that like they're your cards you own. So you kind of like should be able to do whatever you want in theory. You know, I think that the aspect though of like there being legit 
like tens of millions of prizes on the line, I think changed the game a little bit from if it was just a pure collectible where like, I think there's more of a fairness element. And so anyway, like we do want fair access to the cards. And then the other thing is like all of the utility, um, which particularly like the year one prizing and everything, which is so big, like the only way to actually get that utility is the cards being on the platform to use in the game and stuff. And so um, the way that, I'm kind of thinking about that is like um, just to like um, open the door. I've been thinking would be nice to have the ability to sort of like withdraw or, or take off platform cards, but it's more of like a after season type of thing, you know, where it's like once heavy utility from year one has been exhausted, then I think it becomes much more like nuanced in terms of where the value comes from like if we do a tremendous job i think it could even be seen as like the the kind of like future year collectability of the cards is higher than maybe even like what people feel like they're getting from prizing on the platform and things like that in some cases so i could definitely see like that piece of the utility taking a bigger kind of share of the pie uh, in year two plus but like for now we've been going down the assumption of like main point of people playing the game is the utility around gameplay leaderboards rewards other things and also that we have like a tremendously active marketplace that like to the extent that there's a desire to buy and sell like we're doing whatever ten thousand transactions a day it's like a liquid liquidish marketplace right in the, even in the early days so i think it's kind of like relatively low benefit to even like finding a more liquid marketplace elsewhere if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. So the plan is to possibly pursue off-chain after the season. That, that yeah, like we, we do have that. It's an ability that we have that in some cases we can do, like autograph, for example. You can withdraw autograph content because that's like how the deal works. You know, in the case of like our gameplay with the players, which is much more about the fantasy gameplay, that it's a little bit more nuanced. So... Anyway, like a lot of these things we're working on because people raise their hand and they say, like, I would like to be able to withdraw off the platform and put on OpenSea or something. You know, I want to hold it in my custodial wallet at my house and like move it off Polygon on the Ethereum mainnet or whatever. These are like more advanced use cases that I think don't necessarily apply to most people. But like hear that. I hear that feedback. I like appreciate it, too. I personally have a lot of NFTs on my like whatever ledger or you know in my own self-custody so i get it it's like a a use case that's more of a power user but it's a it's like a legit thing so like want to navigate that want to do the best we can to open those doors yeah going back to this kyler murray uh, nine dollar example there's there's sort of two parts to the problem there's there's the seller that presumably made a mistake and meant to enter 900 and accidentally entered nine. And so there's the question of whether like you could kind of break the trade as it were like a financial exchange, it's meant to be decentralized, but occasionally they step in and break a trade that was, that was obviously a mistake. Um, but if you do that, it creates its own poor incentives and its own problems. So, I guess breaking a trade is something that has to be thought about. Um, the other element though, is that someone was able to buy for $9. And um, it's unclear to me 
whether there are already like bots that are able to detect good values and buy, there's some evidence that there, there might be, as I understand it, that's against the terms of service. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to the extent that we ever, we have really good detection for a lot of these sort of things at the company, you know, cause it's part of everything from like the regulation of the business on fantasy and uh, like the scripting and all this stuff like the protections around like detecting and preventing those things are like absolutely like part of the DNA. So it's not something like look the other way on. It's, it's not okay. Like it's, I think there's like a few use cases here that are not ill-intentioned. Like for example, some people just want to like be able to create, for example, like content sites that talk about like transactions that are happening or like, how's the market doing? What is the daily report on like biggest trades, whatever, like lots of interest in the data that I think is like actually great for the game and great for the ecosystem. But like to the extent that it's kind of like, oh, wow, same you know, like account seem to always be there 0.2 seconds after yeah. the, the, the good deal gets listed. like. Yeah, that stuff is just not like um, we're like constantly like identifying and chipping away at those those things to just prevent them, and something that we're very used to doing as well from, you know, like uh, ten years basically operating in fantasy and, and other businesses like it's part of our core like what we do. So anyway, I do like when anytime like people notice something in a new game too. I always like just hearing what they think is. Like here's something going on that I don't think is fair or whatever, because I think it just helps you, like go from what you could like preconceive before the game to something that's like, oh now we're out in the wild and we're really like seeing some additional things we want to also protect, you know. So I like when people bring up those factors and like bring them to light, and I don't ever view it as anything other than like making the game better. Yeah, of course. Um upcoming we have the core pack drop is is september 1st the date for that the the core edition no so it's like pre the season we're, we're prepared basically to offer what i would call the main set it's it's momentum is the name of the set and we're prepared to offer it there's just not really like a need at this stage where we're we're kind of like weeks out from the season and like the way anyone who's played daily fantasy probably has seen like how people tend to trickle in and put in their teams and stuff for football but it's always like very last second for the most part and so you see like heavy heavy demand kind of like right down into the final days and stuff and so i think like the stage of the season we're at we just have enough packs like we don't really need to be releasing packs because like where people are looking for that like they're available on the site right now so there's no like benefit to the player to like just drop packs right so like the way that um uh the way that this will be like sort of showing up for everybody in the community is basically like we'll announce the momentum collection and like what is in that set and how the pack drops will happen and i think the first pack offering will be like much much closer to the first day of the season and maybe even like literally the first day of the season and then um the elevate packs i think are going to carry us through like the kind of seasonally slower piece that get you to the like ramp right if that makes sense so there's no like we weren't viewing it as that there's any benefit to releasing packs right now 
where they're available already, basically. I, I get that. So when the Elevate packs are done, then you then you move on. Um, on the on the Elevate packs, um, the one thing that happened in the marketplace when the contests were released, obviously there was a lot of speculation before the contests were released about what the distribution would be. Then the contests are actually released and you see card values change in the marketplace. And basically the way they changed is the contest rele release information was a bit to the negative for your Rainmaker tier and also for the legendary tier and a bit to the positive for the um, core rare and elite tiers because relative to expectations, there was relatively more of the prize pool going to the, the low tiers, the, the rare core and elite and relatively less going to the Rainmaker legendary. Again, this is relative to market expectations. Um, and so uh, as it's manifested in pack sales, the um, Rainmaker pack has not sold well because um, given that the marketplace prices have come down a little bit, the people would do better going in the marketplace than doing the packs. Um, did any of that uh, surprise the, the DraftKings team? Obviously, they can't say what the market expectations are, but the market expectations just they were what they were and the prices changed when reality came out but were there any surprises there no like it's a i guess it's like an open marketplace so the like the um kind of pricing of things tend to just be a function of like market demand you know so i think that there's a certain level of like yes that's true but then at the same time i'd also be considering like the composition of who's currently even playing the game and like how some people maybe are like evaluating the game and um in short i would say like if you're paying attention to football weeks out from the season that's probably different than like i'm playing a game for fun because i feel like being a part of it and i want to try to like get a world championship seat and stuff like when i'm betting football or like playing fantasy football i do it hours before the game like in week one i'm not like studying it all the way through right you kind of come in and you play because you're playing you know the game for fun right and the vast majority of people are playing on DraftKings for fun we had like four million plus active users on the platform pay something to play last year this year is like significantly more if you follow the earnings of like the monthly active users and stuff. And so like the audience is vast and the majority aren't necessarily kind of like in this that I would call like, I don't know, everything from like pro skill gamer, advantage gamer, whatever. I think that's typically who gravitate early, you know? And so I think like the market trends based on like how people show up and when they show up like I would just be open to the idea that maybe that stuff changes. And so I, I guess like my answer to that would be like, I have noticed and I think that it might also just be a function of like where we are in the cycle of the season, but we'll see. Yeah. That I also think um, one other thing is I think that there's a little bit of a miss, maybe like misestimation about like where the bulk of the demand lives. 
like the if you look at daily fantasy sports for example the biggest contest is twenty dollars it's in the middle it's not like three dollars and it's not a thousand or three thousand or five thousand and so like the natural gravitation of like most people tend to be call it like rare and elite or like the kind of heavy heavy interest areas and then that's from like big bulk of people spending like a middle amount and once you get to the top tiers like rainmaker it's just a much more limited audience of like how many people are really ever gonna whatever pay like eight ten fifteen thousand dollars maybe 20k for a lineup it's it's a limited world and it doesn't necessarily like amount to the same bulk and size of of kind of like a market cap i guess you'd say so i think like when people see the curve that has a bump in the middle with like a little bit more going to elite that's where it's coming from and i think some maybe thought it would be like this kind of mountain slope up where rainmaker is kind of top just because it's the most expensive to play and that's like the learning curve that i think is like doing some of the right things i think to try to explain these but maybe not enough to perfectly get everybody's kind of expectations in the right place and i think a little bit of blowback probably came from just not um not doing everything i could have to maybe better explain that yeah uh on the on the week two onward contest there the market is still trying to assess um whether the week two and onward contest will look similar to week one in prize pool distribution or whether week one is kind of its its own animal because week one uh it does have two million in prize pools over two million in prize pools versus just over one million in prize pools for week two onward um is it fair for people to sort of extrapolate week one prize pools for the rest of the season the, like the breakdown of how they live in terms of by tier by draft group and exactly, everything exactly exactly so yeah the two there's two resources out there that i think are very helpful one is like a for the whole season by draft group there's like a grid which is up um available and the grid shows like the dollar amount of pricing that's going to be in each draft group each week and because of how the season works, there's different like situations throughout the year, like Thanksgiving games or um, where there's like a morning game in Germany, you know, that playoffs. And so because there's some different like uh, schedule construction, there's some nuance to like how the draft groups are created and, and all of that. And so we put out the whole sheet. It just shows like, here's how the draft groups will work and how much prizing is in each. So I think people can immediately get a grip for that. And then the second thing was there's a table, which is kind of like the week one core through Rainmaker, and then um, basically shows like by draft group where the prizing in week one was. And that's generally representative of the rest of the season. There's like a plus minus 10% thing just to like, for example, you know, where there's a like one off very unique promotion or something like I think that that could potentially like there's a need to have a slightly over indexed or slightly under indexed kind of bucket in the short term but i think across the season that'll be like representative so anyway with the way that we explained it, it was like you should expect that this is generally representative plus or minus like 10 percent i like it 
I get um, people want like exact exact, but it's it's a balance between like um, trying to give as as tight of guardrails as possible with also like it's literally the first year ever offering the game, and it would be to have like no degrees of freedom to improve things at all is just like not I think good execution by the company and would really like tie our hands to ever react or, or respond to any feedback that could improve the game. So like we're trying to put the tight guardrails, but not like so tight where there's like literally zero room to make any improvements based on like what we're hearing or what the um, kind of like learnings are early. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm deeply appreciative of this time. I have two last questions. These are quite simple. Um, people, they appreciate the superstar framework where you're only allowed to play one superstar per lineup. Um, some people who are purchasing superstars are concerned that their player will lose superstar status. Uh, in the DraftKings rules, they suggest that the superstars can change over the course of the season. Is that something that's likely to happen or is that just a special case situation based on injuries or what have you? Yeah, I've heard um, almost like the the other side of that, which is I'm playing up my super or I have somebody who's not a superstar and I'm playing them up a tier. Like I have a elite um, Stefan Diggs and I'm playing him up in the legendary to make my legendary lineup. But if he becomes a superstar, then I'm in trouble because I can't play him up. So like that was one of the, the situations that I've heard. And like where this superstar stuff is coming from, like the reason it exists and the reason that um, like it could change is really skill gaming. Like we, like I was mentioning, we operate all of our games licensed and they're regulated and we have licensing for fantasy sports in a bunch of states that allow us to offer paid contests. And so part of that is like the game has to be like provably skill-based. So if you could just go buy all of the top five football players or whatever and put them into a, a lineup with no rules, it's not quite meeting the standard. Yeah. And so like the standard around superstar is meant to force more decisions and constraints so that, you know, the um the game has like a predominance around skill. And so like if there were a situation where we had to do that because the game was sort of like not meeting our standard, then that's when we would do it. And um, yeah, I understand that this is something that's, um, I think like the best bet would be for people to keep in mind if you have like a fringe player, like somebody who's not a superstar, but you think like, hmm, seems kind of like the outlier here that could be a superstar. <laughs> or if you have somebody that's like, tail end of superstar that you could see potentially being demoted i would just try to like factor that in think about the prospect of like what would happen if that were to happen mid-season because some of this is um not necessarily judgment some of it is about like the standard that the game has to meet on the so it digs, it digs in other words is like wide receiver one half halfway through the season then there's a real chance that he's promoted to superstar status yeah, yeah. And I, I hate to like pick one specific person, but I have noticed there's like a list of people that typically get gravitated around as in terms of like, ooh, they seem like they could be a superstar, but they're not like a Joe Burrow or um, Mixon or whatever. Like you, you could name probably better than I could. I, I just noticed like some of the common ones that come up a lot. And 
like what I'm saying is where if you are in those situations where you know you're trading in like a maybe somebody that could potentially get to the top top tier superstar status I would just consider that that could be coming and bake it in and like decide risk like the risk tolerance you have with your own situation because like it's part of the game for sure and like um I have heard some requests around like can you put in black and white terms like how exactly that will work and we're working on that so I think we can similar to this theme of like tighter guardrails just to like um make things like as unambiguous as possible in these areas like I hear that like we are working on things like okay what's a black and white explanation for how like that might change and for now I think what I could tell you is like you probably know judgment based who might be the type of people that might end up in that bucket and just be aware of it. The Andre Swift season. We'll, we'll see, but that, yeah. that is, that is fun to consider. Um, the last question, another uh, simple question. Um, you, you have so far people engaging the game in two different ways. One is uh, building lineups, which is frankly how I've done it. And the other way is uh, people kind of playing the marketplace, guessing where other people are going to go, trying to buy low and sell high. Um, some of those people ask whether fees are uh, negotiable or not. I assume they're kind of not negotiable, not negotiable in the sense not likely to come down because as I understand it, 5% of the 10% goes to the NFL Players Association and that's that's sort of set in stone. So I guess some some of the observers are looking at it and they're saying, well, is the 10% flexible? Are they going to try to estimate the the price elasticity and if if they thought that they could double the volumes by doing 8% versus 10%, would they do that or is the 10% kind of set in stone? I assume it's set in stone, but uh correct me if it's not. Yeah, it's it's this is the kind of like rules of the road on the game, unfortunately. So I understand that there's some different models out there. Like one example I would say is like models like eBay or on DraftKings Marketplace where it's kind of like a seller fee gets taken out. I've seen models like auction houses that have 20% buyer premium and typically the um, – you know, it's like seller lists for something and the buyer pays a premium on top and whatever. So I've seen like different businesses where there's different ways of sort of thinking about those, those like fees. But at the end of the day, I don't think it matters too much. It's like all in a certain sense, it's like all baked into like a final price and like a final what gets received. So I think some of that's just like moving things around for positioning or to, um, like if a company thinks their biggest problem is sourcing things to sell, like Christie's, they're like, okay, we'll have a buyer's premium, but like, you know, to get the things to auction, then like we'll pay something, you know, just to have the supply. And then it's like other companies that have like the supply is pretty healthy and it's much more demand than the seller, I think typically has some kind of fee. And, you know, I hear these things, like I know that there's always going to be a general theme around like, can we get a game that has the most prizes and the least fees possible? And uh, yes, like that's 100% the goal. 
and everybody has a very custom view of that which is typically related to like how they play what their cards are that they're holding what their behaviors are so i think people trading a lot in the marketplace typically want like lower fees people buying to collect and play the game typically just want to focus on more prizing uh whatever right like these sort of things are um also like very unique to people and how they're playing in terms of what needle they want to move and so trying to find the right balance that just like makes sense for the game to exist at all and then you know like kind of uh is reasonable and fair for everyone across like that whole spectrum of how you play of course well uh i think this was really good this was a very clear communication around some tough questions i uh i really appreciate the time yeah yeah you know i think it's like year one i like doing this with you know like a very hands-on view and being like so close to everybody playing and in the community it's been like awesome and it's been great talking to you i look forward to hopefully more of these convos um i'm actually going to the baseball world championship in a few days it's like over the weekend in boston for our dfs product and so we have a bunch of people kind of flying in to compete for the baseball world championship and um, I know I'll be meeting a lot of people out there as well. Look forward to some of the convos. You know, some people are like, this is the best game ever. And I've never, you know, um, like instantly just got it more than anything in my, like, like, uh, the way I have with Rainmakers, I've never just like instantly got it like this, you know, and then some people are just like highly cynical about the game and think it's, you know, another run of the mill NFT, like rug pull scam. So as trying to build that gap, like the more different perspectives I talk to in person that it's been really helpful to try to like bring everybody to the middle ground, which is like this game's super special. We're building like literally name one other licensed IP driven, like sports league or team game that has any prizes at all. You know, they just don't really exist. Right. It's like EA sports, Panini, whatever you could run the mill of every deal, um, top shots, whatever they don't, they don't have this like extra layer. And so like, I think the number one thing I'm, I'm focusing on and I'd love just cause I know like how thoughtful you are, how thoughtful your audience is and everything. Like what I'm, I'd say most focused on is representing the game fairly, just kind of like getting across a rational perspective on like, what is it? What makes it special? What isn't it? And, um, you know, I'd say like the biggest piece that I'm like excited about, but don't think I've gotten across as clearly as I want is probably this idea of like, we took a baseline thing that exists. And then on top of that, because we're DraftKings, because we have gambling licenses and we're able to, we're now chucking in tens of millions of the prizing on top of games, like a game category that's basically like billions of dollars already. And like, we think that that's really exciting and it's a one of a kind thing no one else can do. And I think like that's the seed of a really big game, a big business. And, and, you know, I think it's something that hopefully like hundreds of thousands of people will jump into and find it to be really appealing. But like, until we can translate that better, I think it's always going to be a little bit of, you know, there'll be that cynicism. There'll be that kind of like baggage from past NFT experiences or past like things that maybe haven't gone so well that led to the protectiveness or, or whatever. So like, I really want to make sure that, like I'm doing what I can to represent the game well, fairly, not create like undue hype, not create also like 
a negative cycle of things that aren't even true that like you know the, the worst case pessimism or whatever not like reinforcing that either so just trying to give like a balanced coherent like steady view of the game and like all of that with in mind that it's a multi-year project you know it's not like a short-term thing so um yeah i appreciate this convo and look forward to continuing and hopefully just kind of like um yeah 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 just like doing everything that we can to kind of like get this game across to as many people clearly as possible well obviously i would love to have you on anytime this was fantastic thank you so much yeah it was nice talking to you have a good one rainmakers was gracious enough to be the first sponsor of this podcast for those of you interested in playing on rainmakers download the DraftKings daily fantasy app sign up with the promo code adams Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first card free. You will then join thousands of players who are playing for millions in prizes all football season while building the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers football. That's promo code ADAMS. Build, play, and win only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details.